Morning, everyone. It's fantastic to be with you and uh, to tag team with Ms. Shannon. Uh, I would also just love us to give it up for her because she organized an amazing trunk or treat last night. There was just heaps of kids and families. Uh, thanks so much for coming out. Let's give it up for Shannon for that. So great. One of the things I love this year is that um, for once, I didn't see any arguing about Halloween. Uh, you know, normally every Halloween, there's a big firestorm amongst Christians about Halloween bad, Halloween good. Don't call it that, call it Reformation Day. Uh, call it Harvest Festival, etc. I think this year we were just so exhausted from arguing. We were like, let's just leave it alone, right? And so we just had good, clean fun last night. It was fantastic. There were enough controversial things going on. We just had a great time together. And I always find actually Halloween quite intriguing because it's a time when we make fun of the things that we fear. It's interesting, isn't it? And I think the hope is that if we make fun of the things we fear like death or darkness or whatever, that it'll go away. And I'm not saying that that actually works. I'm just saying it is what it is. And I find that fascinating because you know, fear is no joke. Fear is no joke. If you fear death, making fun of death doesn't necessarily make death, the fear of death go away. And a few weeks ago, Ryan Mack preached amazingly just on introducing our fears to Jesus. And hundreds of you wrote out your fears confidentially on cards. And the Tuesday after that, our staff got together and read through every single card and prayed over those fears and prayed that Jesus would meet you in your fears. And it's been so amazing hearing a couple of stories of people saying, I'm feeling set free from, from fear. Fear is, is no joke. And some of the common fears were fascinating. The one was the fear of death. Uh, the other was the fear of loneliness. And particularly this year, uh, isolation has caused great loneliness. The other was the fear of the future. And I know even today, many would be sitting here going, I fear what is gonna happen after Tuesday. I fear that things are gonna change for the worse. I fear huge civil unrest. I've talked to some of my friends in the church who are in law enforcement just saying, man, we are boarding up downtown shops. We, we, we are preparing for civil unrest. We don't know what's gonna happen. And many of us sit here with that kind of fear, not knowing what's gonna happen. I'm trusting this morning under the Word of God that we would be able to bring our fear of the future and put it in the hands of the nail-scarred risen King. Because He lives, we can face the future. We don't know what's gonna happen, Jesus does, amen? He's gone ahead of us, He holds us, we're deeply loved by Him, tightly held in His hands, and He wants His people to be a people of peace in a time of fear. And I'm trusting that the Lord emboldens us and fortifies us this morning as we face uncertainty. Of course, we are to vote, vote with our conscience, vote biblically, vote trusting that there would be change, but we don't know what kind of change there's gonna be, but we know Jesus has gone ahead of us, amen? amen. The other fear, which was really intriguing to me, was quite common and very unexpected, and it was this. People feared doing something 
that would hurt those that they loved. And that's a different kind of, of fear, isn't it? The one is like a fear of the future, fear that things are gonna change for the worst. The other one is like, there's something inside me that I know is wrong, but I feel like I'm bound to do the thing that's gonna be wrong. It's gonna hurt me, hurt those around me. And that's a different kind of fear, isn't it? Because it's a fear that you and I can't change. And as we look at John the baptizer and the way he spoke about this king who would bring incredible reform, amazing change and transformation, I want us to bring those fears. Lord, I, I fear that the world can't change. I fear that I can't change and put it at the feet of Jesus and trust Him again. And I'm gonna read Luke chapter three. It's quite a long verse, long passage, but it's, it's a beautiful one. It's one that we know well. My, my challenge as a preacher is that I'm called to preach a book that everyone has read. And so there's a familiarity. I was like, oh, I've, I've read that. I wanna tell you, if we allow the Word to read us, we will find new things. The Lord has not stopped acting through His Word, amen? So let's, as we read this passage, allow the Word to read us and allow the King of change to come and do what He does best. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod uh, being Tetrarch of Galilee and his brother Philip, Tetrarch of the region of Iteria and Trachonitis and Lysanias, Tetrarch of Abilene during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. Quite the mouthful, right? The word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah. I just wanna stop there and say, isn't it amazing that these are the movers and shakers in society? These are the political power brokers and the religious power brokers. Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate and Herod. It was like the president, the senator, the governor. And then you have the religious power brokers, Annas and Caiaphas. And the people were expecting change and the people expected that change would come through the political and religious power brokers of the day, the movers and shakers. But in verse two, it says, during that year, the word of God came to John. And it carries on the theme that we see in Luke that the word of God always came to outsiders, not those in the center of power and privilege. It came to shepherds as they watched their flocks by night. It came to a teenage girl called Mary. It came to an old prophetess called Anna. It came to an old priest called Zechariah and it came to Zechariah's son, this wild and woolly prophet living by himself out in the wilderness, covered in goat's hair, eating locusts and honey, a voice crying in the wilderness. And I just wanna say, actually change doesn't always come through those in the center of power and privilege. God's kind of change often comes through those on the outskirts through the outsiders. And like Christine said, you and I should never under, underestimate the change that God wants to bring through you and I, irrespective of what power or privilege we have. God's Word comes to John. It doesn't always come through the high school quarterback or the prom queen. It actually comes through the kids sitting by themselves in the cafeteria. It doesn't necessarily come through the preacher with 10 million YouTube views. 
It might be coming through a little pastor in a little house church out in Hemet. Might come through the millennial girl with a food bank in Skid Row. Never underestimate what God wants you to do and the change that He brings through those who are just obedient. God doesn't need you to be powerful. He doesn't need you to be smart. Doesn't need you to be wealthy. He needs you to be obedient. And John was obedient. And he was a voice crying in the wilderness that brought incredible change. Amen? Amen. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. And he said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the ax is laid to the root of the trees. Every tre tree therefore that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, what, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you're authorized to do. And soldiers also asked him, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. And as the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming and the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand. That's like a pitchfork to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who'd been reproved by him, by John, for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. Now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened. And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. This is the word of the Lord, amen. amen. What kind of change does this king bring? What kind of change does he bring? Well, firstly, we see that Jesus promises change through the reconstruction of the human heart. Listen to John's imagery. He's using building imagery. A voice crying in the wilderness makes straight the ways of the Lord. He envisages the ways of people being this crooked path. And he says, every valley will be raised. Every mountain will be brought low. The rough places will be made smooth, preparing a way for the King to come. And he envisages Jesus coming, his cousin coming like a builder with a pickaxe. Think of like this road going out into the desert, like to Palm Springs with orange cones everywhere and 
excavators and cement mixers and this very windy hilly road that's becoming straight and becoming smooth. And that's what John says Jesus would do. He would come and he's not talking about Jesus actually excavating and leveling physical land. He's talking about the reconstruction of the human heart. And all these people are waiting for change to come through the governor and through Pontius Pilate and through religious leaders. And he's saying, no, 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 there is a king coming who will actually change the very terrain of the human heart. No one else in history will ever be able to do what he does. And it will happen, he says, verse three, through repentance and the forgiveness of sins. I love John, he's only got one message and it's the message of the gospel that through repentance and forgiveness of sins, a king is coming who will reconstruct the very terrain of the human heart. And that is good news. That's why it says, I mean, then he kind of gets like real kind of angry, but then it says, and John preached the good news. The good news is that your and my heart can be changed, reconstructed, through repentance and forgiveness of sins. And I just wanna spend a little moment about looking at, at what it means to have a heart that's like a mountain heart where it says every mountain will be brought low and every valley will be raised up. John is talking about the kinds of people who have mountain hearts. The road of your heart winds into the wilderness, but it winds up a mountain. It's like you struggle with the sin of pride. You struggle with the sin of self-reliance. You perhaps are given to outbursts of anger. Perhaps you bully people with your words and your actions. Perhaps you take advantage of them. And John is saying, as people repent and receive forgiveness from that, the mountain of their heart is actually brought low and brought level. That's what the king of change can do. I don't know about you, but this year has revealed my mountain heart. It's revealed that I'm pretty self-reliant, that I like to think I'm in control. I like to think if you do this and this and this, it'll all work out. And I found myself freaking out when it didn't. I found myself getting defensive when people would critique and I'm doing the best I can do. How about you? you found your heart a bit like a mountain heart? And John is saying, as we repent, the word repentance is the Greek word metanoia. Can you say that? And it literally means a change of mind, a change of heart, and a change of direction. And what John is saying is as people realize, I've got a mountain heart, and it's actually leading into the wilderness they can actually do a U-turn, a change of mind, a change of heart, a change of direction and come back to Jesus and He will forgive their sins. And then He says, there'll be others where Jesus will come to their valley hearts. Every mountain will be made low. Every valley will be lifted up. And that's a different kind of heart, isn't it? A valley heart is one as well. It winds its way into the wilderness, but it winds its way more to anxiety and self-pity and bitterness and resentment and gloominess and pessimism. And, and, and I wanna say, I, 
I want to be so careful here because valley hearts are very often very tender hearts. And what the Bible is not saying is that anxiety and depression are all sin. Let me just say that anxiety and depression are complex things. Because circumstance affects our hearts. Relationships affect our hearts. Chemistry affect our hearts. And so the last thing I wanna do is put a big heavy on you. Well, if you're depressed, you're in sin. How many of us have not experienced some sort of anxiety or depression or at least deep sadness this year? I've started saying to my kids almost every morning on a scale of one to 10, how happy are you? Be honest with me. I'm watching their hearts. I'm watching my heart, my wife's heart. And I know that we've gone through great sadness. But even if these things are complex, the road of our heart can cross a boundary into sin where we start to get into self-pity, which is sin. Where we start to get into bitterness, which is sin. Where we start to get into self-protectiveness or self-justification. Well, I'm doing this because I'm sad and so I just will. And at that point, actually Jesus requires that we repent. Not necessarily of sadness, but of what the sadness is leading us to do. And the hope is that every valley shall be raised up. There's no one here, sitting here, in sadness, in gloominess, anxiety, depression, whose heart is beyond the loving, upbuilding hands of Jesus the King. He wants you to bring your mountain heart and your valley heart to His, his hands. And He says, trust me as you repent that I can bring the mountain down and raise the valley up, amen? amen. That's, that's why it says it's good news. Because when the king comes, his change is not just kind of sin management, it's actually sin removal. I watch from my office at the trucks going up to the dump, removing trash. I'm just like, it's so awesome. They're just like removing it from one place and dumping it. And it reminds me of that Psalm 103, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he taken his, our sins from us. Isn't that good news? Let's bring None of us should fear, I can't change. I'm just bound to do the things that I should not do. Actually, when we bring our hearts to the King of change, there is internal transformation, a reconstruction of our souls. You with me? And then secondly, what we see is that there's a change that actually works from the inside out. Where John says, Actually, the kind of change that Jesus brings begins with a heart reconstruction, but actually works its way out to every sector of society. So people start to come to Him with this message of repentance from different sectors of society, and they're going, well, what, 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 what must I do? The beginning of a heart of repentance is saying, not just how should I change my thinking, but how should I change my life? What, what must I do? And verse 11 John starts talking just to civilians like you and I, verse 11, he says, so if you've got more than one tunic, give it to someone who doesn't. If you've got more than enough food, give it. He's just talking about the sin of hoarding. The sin of saying, I'm okay, Jack, I don't care about that person. He's saying repentance actually works from a heart and mind change into an act, action change. Where it's like, how many pairs of shoes have you got? How many jackets have you got? How much food is stuffed in your pantry? 
Maybe you got too much, you're holding on to too much. He calls civilians to repent and then do good, amen? And then He speaks to tax collectors. He, he speaks to the business sector. And He says, hey, don't collect more than you're authorized to do. Don't be greedy. Don't extort people. And He's saying actually heart change, change turns into life change. And then He talks to soldiers. He talks to those in law enforcement in verse 13. And He says, if you're a soldier, be content with what you earn and don't bribe people. Don't force them to pay you money. There's a little cheeky aside. This is why I don't believe in defunding the police. I grew up in a nation where the police and army were defunded. They had no money or very little. And so they bribed and extorted. You don't wanna live in that country. You do not. And he's saying, actually, law enforcement, don't bully people, don't bribe people. Be content with your wages. And then he speaks to Herod. And the story is that Herod has been sleeping with Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. So now John takes his courage in his hands and he starts speaking to Herod the king saying, hey, this is not in line with Jesus' sexual ethic. Let me just ask you, where did that get John? Hello? Where, it got him with his head on a platter. It's hard to live out Jesus' sexual ethic in this world. We will get hit. But what I want you to see is that John doesn't just expect heart change, he expects life change. And he uses this idea of bear fruit in keeping with repentance. That's what he says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. In other words, when you change your heart, you repent, Jesus actually comes and reconstructs your heart. Your heart goes from a wilderness heart to a fertile heart, where then trees can grow with fruit that other people can see and taste. John is talking about hypocrisy. He's saying, don't just be those Christians and say, oh, sorry, Jesus, and then carry on living. He's saying, actually, Jesus is coming. And now Jesus has moved from a, a builder to more of a farmer. I wish I had like a chainsaw, kind of a Halloween chainsaw massacre, no, I'm joking. Um, but, but he's got a winnowing fork, which is a pitchfork. And what a farmer would do, he would take the wheat, he would throw it up in the air and the wheat would land on the floor and the chaff would blow away. And he would, he would be going, this is legit and that's not. And he's talking about Jesus who would come and actually sift through those who confessed, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian. And he's saying, actually, some are wheat and some are chaff. There's a winnowing fork in his hand. And then he says, the trees that do not bear fruit, there is an ax. And this Jesus is gonna take an ax to the root. So I don't have a chainsaw, I've got kind of a hedge clipper. I love me some yard tools. I love this stuff and it's not even mine, it's Mike Duggan's, but he's lent it to, to me and I just like love cutting, I mean, my, my dream is to have like these hedges that just go, you know, like this. Renelle's like, what are you, you're getting so old. It's like, what are you doing? Hedging everything straight, etc. But I think this idea of Jesus, who is so gracious and so forgiving, but at a point comes with judgment and says, you said sorry, but there was no fruit that people could see or taste. You're not with me. We've got to wrestle with that Jesus. 
Because some of us were raised with hippie Jesus. Hippie Jesus, everything's cool. Just carry on, do your best. Hippie Jesus is cool with everything. And actually hippie Jesus is not the Jesus of the Bible. The Jesus of the Bible is gracious and loving and forgiving, but he also comes back as a judge at some point and says, if you said sorry, I expect for there to be fruit on the tree of your life. That's the kind of change that Jesus expects, that those who follow him affect every sector of society through repentance. Now track with me here. John was speaking to a people who felt oppressed by the Roman government. And he wanted change on the inside. They wanted change on the outside. They wanted Herod to repent. They wanted Pontius to repent. And actually John comes and says, no, 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 you repent. At this point in our political moment, beloved, it's very easy to point fingers at people that we disagree with and say, you must repent. And we want justice for them, but we want mercy for ourselves. And I just wanna say, the way that the Lord heals society is by people owning their own stuff and saying, I will repent. Let me speak tenderly to you. Jesus cares about who you vote for. He really does. But Jesus cares even more about how you live after you vote. We are called to vote biblically and vote our conscience. But we are not allowed to vote biblically and vote our conscience and then deny our conscience and hate and slander everyone who voted differently from us. That is not bearing fruit. And the fruit that Jesus wants on the tree of your and my life now is not just a vote, it's actually a life. It's a life. And Jesus wants His people, irrespective of how they vote, to bear the fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness in a world gone mad. He wants you and I to be peacemakers. And can I ask that we would bring our hearts, especially when we feel angry and indignant and there's a place for that, bring our hearts and say, Lord Jesus, at this time, please empower me to bear fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. Can you give me just a little Presbyterian or Pentecostal amen there? I know this is a hard time, beloved. I know it's a hard time. Some people are going, it's civil war. If it is, all the more reason for the people of God to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Because we know the greatest obstacle of the world to Jesus is not Jesus always gospel, it's Jesus followers. It's people who say, I belong to Jesus, but there's no fruit on their tree. I'm just asking, oh Lord, give us fruit on the tree. Let's not even think nationally, let's think in terms of our families, in terms of our marriages. Renell and I, as part of Southlands Engage, have been doing a marriage course. We've got like 10 couples and it's been fantastic in our backyard. And one of the things that was really like life and spark and uh, was talking about repentance and forgiveness in our marriages. And I wanna tell you, any healthy marriage is made up of two good forgivers. And we insisted homework the one day was saying, you go home and you repent of something you've done. And don't just say, oh, I'm sorry, but th this was the reason. And don't the other person say, it's okay, but no, no, no. You say, please forgive me. I am sorry. 
I forgive you. One of the couples that was great. They've been married nine years, great marriage. And he tries it out. He's like, I'm sorry that I didn't do the laundry last week. She was like, oh no, you don't. You're not getting away with that little repentance. You repent of something deeper than that, you know? I was like, oh, we got a problem on our hands. But it's an amazing thing, married folk, and in your friendships too, if you're not married, when you start to say, I'm sorry, and I forgive you, it's like opening the windows in a stuffy room. The oxygen of heaven comes in and a cycle of ungrace turns into a cycle of grace. Never underestimate the power of repentance and forgiveness of sins, of sending one another away debt-free. You're saying, oh, are you just saying I must just forgive and forget? I must just forgive and forget? I mean, this person hurt me deeply, they abused me. I'm not saying you forgive and forget. I'm going on off on a tangent, but I'm trusting it's a God tangent. Because often with people, whether it's a friendship or in ministry or marriage, they've been deeply hurt. And you're like, are you you're saying I must just forgive and forget completely? No. Forgiveness is sending a person away debt-free, even if you can't completely forget what they've done. Let me give you an example of this. I was thinking of an example of this the other day. When I was about 14, my mom cooked us lobster and the lobster was rotten and we were all desperately ill, desperately ill. It was an honest mistake, but we were all desperately ill. Like for years, I couldn't look at a lobster. I wanna tell you, I've never ever eaten lobster from my mom ever again. I forgave, but I didn't completely forget. But I can't tell you how many great meals I have had with my mom since then. And when I have a great meal with my mom, I don't say, well, thank God it wasn't the lobster. (laughs) Remember that lobster, mom? Man, that lobster was terrible. Thank goodness I'm not getting sick here. There's a way of forgiveness that doesn't hold it over a person. So for instance, you get hurt with someone in business. You don't have to. Forgiveness doesn't mean you have to do business with them. But it doesn't mean that you don't stop being a friend, doing ministry, having kids over. You just go, we're probably not gonna do business again together. But you don't hold it over them. You don't allow that thing to ruin your whole friendship. You just say, look, we might not be able to do that thing together, but actually grace means we can still have a relationship. Are you tracking with me? I tell you what, forgiveness, Jesus' forgiveness is a skill. We've got to learn it. Finally, Jesus is not just a builder. He's not just a gardener or a farmer. He's a baptizer. So John is teaching so well, they are convinced that he's the Christ. And he's like, no, 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 no. I'm not even worthy to untie the sandals of the king who's coming. He's using slave imagery. A slave would untie the sandals and wash the king's feet. He's like, I'm not even worthy. This is how amazing he is, me compared to him. This is my cousin, but this, this is the king. And he says, I baptize with water, but the one who's coming, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. I can't do that, he can. And what John was wanting the people and us to understand is this wilderness imagery with the water and the baptism was supposed to remind the Jewish people of the Exodus, of coming out of the wilderness, of this deliverer leader who would take them through the water. But instead of delivering them from a a, a nation or a leader, this deliverer leader would set them free from something completely different. And it was 
separation from God. So when Jesus gets baptized, He's like, He's the new and better Moses. But now He's not taking people out of slavery physically into a new land. He's actually introducing these people to His Father through the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit comes down like a dove. And the Father says over Jesus, this is my Son whom I love, with whom I'm well pleased. And John says, and He will baptize you with the same Spirit. In other words, you and I will be, the, our hearts will be under construction until the day we die. But what Jesus does is say, if you put your faith in me and you receive my Spirit, you will know the pleasure and the smile of my Father, even as you are under construction. You're not going, well, change my heart so that God will love me. You're going, God loves me and therefore He changes my heart. It's completely different. That's why it's good news. And what He's saying is, you know what? Jesus is not gonna deliver you from one geography and address to another one. He's gonna allow you to breathe a different air in the land where you are. California. California with the virus of restlessness. California with the urge always to be someplace else. California with the urge to go someplace more moral and more cheap where you can get a bigger house for less. I have empathy for people that want to leave. But I wanna tell you, Jesus through the baptism of the Holy Spirit is saying, it's not gonna be necessarily better in a different address. I'm coming to you where you are and I'm filling you with the Holy Spirit so that you can know the love and the blessing and the presence of my Father right here. We need that. We need that because we feel, oh, it's getting darker. It's getting darker. Well, if it's getting darker, Holy Spirit, come and make your home in us so that we can be light in this dark place. Please, Lord, please, Lord. So important. And so here, Jesus is just saying, you might feel like this land is parched and a wilderness, but I am here to just pour out the water of my spirit and I will refresh you in a dry and weary land. I will do that. It's okay, we can clean that up. Jesus is a builder. Jesus is a farmer. Jesus is a baptizer. And He will refresh us with the life of the Spirit if we ask Him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank You so much that You bring change. And You don't always bring circumstantial change. You don't always bring a change of address. But You bring a change of atmosphere. You refresh us in a dry and thirsty land with your Spirit. We need you. We need you. So we bring our hearts to you, our mountain hearts and our valley hearts. And we hold on to the promise, every mountain will be made low. Every valley will be lifted up. Oh Lord, we repent. We repent. And we ask that you forgive our sins and reconstruct our hearts that we might walk in forgiveness and repentance in physical, powerful ways at this time. Lord, make us peacemakers. Make us peacemakers at a time of great conflict, we pray. Amen.